what is up my dudes welcome back to olympia oddities i'm trista and i'm steven and we're gonna jump right into our episode today so for our episode today we're finally kicking off our coverage of the pacific northwest's most widely recognized cryptid bigfoot today we're going to be discussing some of the most well-known and easily recognizable footage in all of cryptozoology the patterson gimlin film i'm so excited i can't stand it I am super stoked on this one. I mean, like, it's so iconic. Everyone's seen that picture of Bigfoot from it. It's used in, like, every single documentary and TV show of Bigfoot ever made, ever. I'm just excited to potentially learn more, seeing as I'm already, like, 30% hair and 20% foot. I feel like we have a lot that we could we could we could relate with. You really identify with the Bigfoot. I identify with the Bigfoots. <laughs> I'm proud of you for living your truth. <laughs> uh the Patterson Gimlin film is also occasionally called the Patterson film or the PGF because cryptid and U- UFO people like super love their abbreviations. Abbreviate everything. The footage was shot in 1967 in Northern California. Since it was shot, it's been the focus of many attempts to debunk the footage or to have its authenticity proved. We'll cover the two men's backgrounds, the trip they were on when the footage was shot, what the actual footage contains, the aftermath of the tape, and we'll listen to what skeptics and believers have to say and make our own opinions on the tape. The Patterson-Gimlin film is named after the two men who shot the film, Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin. The footage was shot along Bluff Creek, which is a tributary of the Klamath River in Humboldt County. The site is about 38 miles south of Oregon and 18 miles east of the Pacific Ocean. The exact filming location was actually lost over the years because of a flood that wiped out the foliage and caused new growth that was very different looking than the original plant life. The site was rediscovered in 2011. Patterson and Gimlin claimed that they shot the footage on October 20th, 1967. How did they rediscover the site that they found, or well, that where they shot that footage? I'm not sure. Maybe they had, you know, they probably went out and just like compared the footage to the actual. They probably had like a general idea of where it was, and they probably went out there with like photos and like just kept going until it matched up. Nuts. I'm not sure though, because I mean, I have that same problem. Like every time I go hiking, every year. I mean, granted, I'm a transplant to washington but every year i go hiking i'm like this place looks vastly different and i love it though i love it yeah but still i'm like i wouldn't even recognize this place yeah and like something like a flood can like cause setting to like change so much dramatically Uh, before becoming legends in the bigfoot community patterson and gimlin were rodeo riders and amateur boxers They were both local champions in their weight classes, and Patterson had been a successful high school football player. Okay, real quick. These guys sound like badasses. Right? (laughs) To not only be, like, riding in rodeos, I'm assuming, like, riding bulls or broncs, but also boxing? Like, just knocking people out, and then Patterson was a high school football player, a successful one, which I can only imagine what his career looked like. Because, I mean, the dude went on to ride in rodeos. And he was an amateur boxer, so I can only assume he was he was pretty good at football. I want to be friends with these men. Right? They sound like tough guys. <laughs> Very interesting. I want a movie about that part of their lives. Oh, yes. Yes. Like, even if you take Bigfoot out of the story of their lives, it's still like, wow, those guys really 
accomplished a lot. I would love to see a movie of the boxing, the <laughs> boxing and the and the, and the rodeo era. I, w- I want to see that. Boxing Bigfoot. Boxing Bigfoot. <laughs> I'm going to fund that movie. <laughs> Roger Patterson originally had become interested in Bigfoot after reading an article by Ivan T. Sanderson. The article about Bigfoot had been published in True Magazine in December 1959. In 1961, the author of this article published a book called Abominable Snowmen, Legend Come to Life, which had gathered stories from all around the world of Bigfoot sightings and Bigfoot track findings. Patterson became even more interested in the legend of Bigfoot through this book. By the way, this book is still available and ready to buy on Amazon on multiple platforms. It is. And you know what I'm doing tonight. (laughs) I'm going to think about buying it. (laughs) I'll probably end up buying it. In 1962, Patterson visited Bluff Creek and began meeting with fellow Bigfoot believers. According to author Marion Place, he returned to Bluff Creek again in 1964 and met up with a timber worker named Pat Graves. Sick name. (laughs) I love it. It sounds like a stage name. I was, I was, I get Undertaker vibes. Right? Like, I I feel like Undertaker comes out and then it's like, and his sidekick. Pat Graves! <laughs> and that's, like, arguably more intimidating than The Undertaker. Because <laughs> that guy just comes up after the Taker's done with just Patch Graves. The two traveled to Laird Meadows, and once they were there, they spotted some Bigfoot tracks. Place wrote that, For him, an almost unbear- unbearably exciting, spine-chilling experience. What a tremendous feat it would be, what a scientific breakthrough, if he could obtain unshakable evidence that these tracks were not the work of a prankster, but the actual mark of a hitherto unknown creature. If he succeeded, he would be famous, and rich. Alas, fame and fortune were not gained that year, nor the next, nor the next. Patterson invested thousands of dollars and hours combing Bigfoot in Sasquatch territory. He fought constant ridicule and a shortage of funds. He founded the Northwest Research Foundation. Through it, he solicited funds. The response was encouraging and enabled him to lead several expeditions. In 1966, he published a paperback book at his own expense. He added the income from its sales and his lectures to the search fund. As each wilderness jaunt failed to see or capture the monster, one by one, the thrill seekers dropped out. But Patterson never gave up. This dude just living my life. Just, just looking for Bigfoot his entire life. I mean, that's pretty much my life, too. He's more serious about it than I am. I'm yeah, more like, like... casual squatcher. Yeah, I was about to say, like, this guy is, like, out in the thick of it. Like, he's, he's looking. I'm into it. I'm into it. Patterson's 1966 self-published book was titled, Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist? Which is also available on multiple platforms on Amazon. Also buying that. Oh, the book has now been described as little more than a collection of newspaper clippings laced together with Patterson's circus poster-style prose. Now I want to buy it even more. Uh, me too. <laughs> this sounds like something that I would totally be into. The circus-style, so circus poster-style especially. I'm like, that's right up my alley, right up your oh, alley. yes. We've got to get a, a copy of this book. We're doing it. The book did contain 20 pages of interviews that were previously unpublished, 17 illustrations done by Patterson, of some of the experiences featured in the book, and 20 other photos and illustrations. In either May or, Ju- or June of 1967, 
Patterson began filming a mock documentary about a couple of cowboys led on a Bigfoot hunting expedition by an old miner and an indigenous guide. The guide would be played by Gimlin in a wig, and the storyline was to recall the story of Fred Beck's showdown in Ape Canyon that happened in 1924. And I did an episode about this called the 1924 Bigfoot Battle about him and some other miners showdown against a group of rock-throwing Bigfoots near Mount St. Helens. It's one of my personal favorite stories, Um, one of my favorite episodes that I've done. I got to read my favorite book of all time. I fought the ape man of Mount St. Helens <laughs> by Fred Beck for it, and it was life-changing. That title, every time, it, it always gets me. It always gets me, too. And then every time we talk about it, all I hear is just whoop, and then just like a loud rock, just, <laughs> just right up against the tree. Also, can we talk about how the guide is just going to be Bob Gimlin in a wig? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is this is this is my hang up on being friends with Bob. But for the most part, it still sounds like a badass except for this 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 area. This right. is this, like, is, this Bob, is We can sit Bob down and we can talk to him about why his past previous decision to wear a wig and play an indigenous person was probably not the best idea bob look at me the rodeo riding amazing that boxing you're doing top notch but you can't you can't be doing this the brown face the brown face the wig you can't bob you can't you can't be doing this my, can't my man doing it, my guy can't be doing it you gotta scale that back <laughs> for the actors and camera crew they used acquaintances including gimlin and a bob named and a, a man a man named Bob Hieronymus. Is is this a black metal musician or a or a man? Yeah, um, I'm definitely going to call Bob Hieronymus Bob Euronymus at some point during this episode. And that is, yes, a totally different man. And that one goes out to all my greasy boys out there. <laughs> Prior to the start of their filming, Patterson visited Los Angeles on three separate occasions. He drove there in 1964 and visited with rockabilly musician Jerry Lee Merritt. Sick. Who was also a Yakima, the Palm Springs of Washington, native. During this visit, Patterson tried to sell him a hoop toy invention. What's a hoop toy? <laughs> I'm just imagining the, like, the hoop stick, you know? Like, those kids that were just, like, they had nothing else better to do. So they were saying, oh, I'm going to, like, hit this oh, like with a the stick. Back in like, my day, all the... we had was a stick. And a hoop. I was thinking like a hula hoop. And they like put it on the stick and they just instead of like putting it on their hip, they just like they just got it on like the end of their arm and they're just wailing oh, it on a stick. It might be that. He visited him again in nineteen sixty six, once again trying to sell him on the hoop toy. <laughs> He's pushing these hula hoops or stick hoop so hard on I just, this rockabilly man. I just like the phrase, once again, trying to sell him on the hoop toy. <laughs> Merritt eventually moved back to Yakima and became neighbors with Patterson. He then became a collaborator on the collaborator on the Bigfoot film Patterson was dreaming of. He and Merritt returned to Hollywood again in 1966. On this trip, Patterson asked his friend Roy Rogers Hell of, yeah! of cowboy fame for help. I love that. I saw Roy Rogers' name Roy Rogers' name pop up and I got so excited. Oh, that's my favorite Sears and Roebuck cowboy. 
I love whenever a celebrity makes a sighting in one of my episodes. Oh, hell yeah. I love just a weirdo celebrity popping up. We had Woody Harrelson in the Timothy Treadwell episode. <laughs> we got Roy Rogers popping up in an episode about Bigfoot. I think I like the Roy Rogers one better, honestly. Yeah, it's And that fun. might just be like the Tennessee and then me just talking just like all the country music folk, but I don't know, man. I like I like Roy Rogers being in this story a lot. On this trip, he also attempted to sell his ponies and wagon to Disney or Knott's Berry Farm to raise some money. By the summer of 1976, they had received $700 from the Radford family and had shot a few scenes of their movie. They tried to attract more investors to donate to their film, but didn't have much luck. They also trademarked the term Bigfoot around this time. In October of 1976, Patterson and Gimlin headed out to the Six Rivers National Forest in Northern California. They were driving Gimlin's truck, and they had brought plenty of supplies along with them, along with three horses. Patterson had chosen the specific location they were headed to because of the number of Bigfoot sightings that had happened there sporadically, and because of the footprints that had been found that way since found out that way since 1958. His familiarity with the area and how he had previously met up with other squatchers in the area may have also played a role in selecting this location. So wait a minute, what if what if the squatch sightings were other squatchers and they were like in a ghillie suit? Like they're dressed up as squatch? Yeah, like a, a squatch ghillie suit. You know, I often wonder if a lot of like the Bigfoot calls that people like um Whoop! Yeah, like those. If they're just other freaking weirdos just doing it back, somebody hears one and they're like, "Oh, that's a Sasquatch," and then they do it back, and then it just ends up to be two groups of people all making Sasquatch noises at each other from a couple miles away. I have something to show you after this that reminds me of that. But I am almost honestly, honestly, I'm a little inclined to believe that. <laughs> I would, I would think that that's what that is—just other weirdos just shouting back. The most recent sighting of Bigfoot in the area had been the discovery of the Blue Creek Mountain Tracks. These tracks had been spotted on August 28, 1967, and were investigated by journalist John Green, Bigfoot hunter Rene Dahinden, and ar archaeologist Don Abbott. Patterson had gotten wind of the mysterious tracks after Al Hodgson, owner of the Willow Creek Variety Store, told Patterson's wife, who then relayed the message to Patterson. Gimlin says that he was more on the skeptical side when it came to Bigfoot, but both of them agreed that if they were to see one, they would not attempt to shoot it. Patterson was particularly adamant about this stance. And now I'm back at really wanting to be friends with this man again. Right, Gimlin, we can forgive you for the wig, because we really, really appreciate your pro-Bigfoot, pro-not-shooting Bigfoot stance. So if they didn't want to shoot him, what they want? What they want to do? They just want to tag him? Just record evidence. Take a photo with them and a video. Because so far that I can see, they, it didn't even seem like they were planning on like tranquilizing him or anything. They were just gonna be like, "Oh, he'll be friendly. We're just gonna walk up to him, just, you know, he'll slip some of his some of his fur. We'll all just stand in a nice, in a nice, you know, group. We'll get a, get a few pictures, <laughs> a couple goofy ones." <laughs> the story of their Sasquatch sighting goes. On Friday, October 20th, 1967, Patterson and Gimlin had been moving upstream on horseback along the eastern bank of Bluff Creek. Sometime between 1.15 and 1.40, they came to an overturned tree with a large root system at a turn in the creek, almost as high as a room. 
They rode around the bend of this overturned tree, and they came upon a log jam that had been left after a flood had come through in 1964. They both spotted the figure at the same time. They reported that it was either crouching besides the creek to their left or standing there on the opposite bank of the creek. Gimlin said that he was in a mild state of shock witnessing the strange creature. It's got to be pretty freaky to just come around a corner, even if you are out there like looking for Bigfoot and filming like Bigfoot-related content. It's got to be jarring to just come around a corner and all of a sudden there's just a giant monkey man <laughs> there. Or, sorry, giant monkey woman. <laughs> Patterson estimated the height of the creature as 6 feet 6 inches to 7 feet tall, while Gimlin guessed that it was around 6 feet tall. Patterson would later raise his estimate of the creature's size to 7 foot 6 inches. Some scientists who have viewed the footage think that his later estimate is about a foot too tall, so the creature was probably in the 6 foot 6 to 7 foot range. Sarah, we're we're getting into fishing story territory now. It was this big, and then tells the story again like, an hour later he's like it was this big slightly bigger yeah like that could be an indication that he's lying because he's uh exaggerating the height of it so much but i feel like it's also kind of a natural human tendency to exaggerate and kind of like add, you know oh you know it couldn't have been any bigger than like six three definitely six four if if nothing else like six five six six at most but like six seven to be sure the creature was massive, standing on two legs like a human. Its body was covered in hair that was short and silvery brown, dark reddish brown, or black. Those are three different colors. So Sasquatch is a tarantula? It does sound like tarantula colors. That's what I'm saying. I'm just imagining Sasquatch as a Ooh, that's more terrifying than a regular Sasquatch. A tarantula squatch? Oof. Squatch Rantula. Squatch Rantula. Sci-fi, we got a movie for you. We really do. Please pay us. <laughs> the creature seen in the footage also appears to be female and has hair-covered breasts. Which I will say, I, I, I did, but I was like, how, how can you even make anything out in this, in this video? I was like, I, I was contesting this. And then Tristan found a really good video and I was like, yeah, okay. That you're right. <laughs> she definitely totally see does that. have boobs, and we will definitely get more into Bigfoot boobies later on in this episode when we discuss whether or not the suits it's a suit or an actual Bigfoot. It's about to get weird. Patterson estimated that he was probably just 25 feet away from the creature when it was at its closest. He says his horse reared after coming across the creature, and he spent about 20 seconds getting his horse back under control and dismounting from it. He went around to his horse's other side and got his camera out of his saddlebag. He started recording and ran off after the creature. Gimlin stayed on his horse and crossed the creek after Patterson. He rode on a path to the left of, the, of Patterson and says that he came within 60 to 90 feet of the Sasquatch. That's actually pretty close. It really is, especially Patterson getting within 25 feet of it. That's closer than I think I would feel comfortable with. I don't even think I would feel close, or er, not close, excuse me. I don't even think I would feel anywhere near safe at 90 feet. Yeah, agreed. He then dismounted, rifle in hand, but didn't point his gun at the creature. The Sasquatch had made it about 120 feet before Patterson was able to take off on foot after it, causing the film to be shaky as Patterson tried to catch up. 
It gets less shaky once Patterson is around 80 feet away again. At this point, the creature glanced over her right shoulder at the men, and Patterson fell to his knees. This moment is frame 264 of the footage. Patterson later told researcher John Green that the Bigfoot's expression was contempt and disgust. You know how it is when the umpire tells you one more word and you're out of the game. That's the way it felt. And I mean, that is a pretty contempt and disgust face, but that's not that's not going to stop me from getting that painted above my bed later. The Sasquatch? Yes, that entire scene. Just that that frame. What frame was that? 264. Frame 264. Getting that painted above my bed. Yeah, and the uh it looks back at them several times over its shoulder, almost it like does. it's irritated or annoyed that they're there. Why are why why is this female squatch and I the same? You guys really are similar. <laughs> The most famous portion of the film, the less shaky middle section, occurred at this time, and the single most famous image of Bigfoot happens at frame 352, when the creature turns around to look at the men again. Patterson said that the creature had turned towards them a total of three times, but the other times had happened before he began filming or when he was running with his finger off of the trigger. I stand corrected. Frame 352. Shortly after the famous over-the-shoulder glance, the Bigfoot disappeared behind some trees for 14 seconds. She reappears in the film's final 15 seconds. Patterson had moved about 10 feet to a better vantage point, and the creature faded into the trees and away from view as the film ran out. The creature was about 264 feet away when it disappeared from view. Gimlin got back on his horse and started following the Sasquatch, keeping a good distance between him and the creature. It finally disappeared around a bend in the road 300 feet away. Patterson called Gimlin to come back to him as he was feeling unsafe on the ground without a gun and was worried that another creature might be in the area. Their entire encounter with the Sasquatch lasted less than two minutes. Less than two minutes. So short, but like you're definitely going to think about that for the rest of your life. Absolutely you are. Gimlin and Patterson gathered up Patterson's horses, who had been spooked and ran off downstream. Can't blame them. Uh, upon coming across the Bigfoot. Patterson took his second reel of film and shot some of the footprints left behind. They attempted to try to track the Bigfoot down again, but lost track of her either a mile or three miles in, depending on the source. They returned to their campsite, which was three miles south, and then returned to the site of the Bigfoot sighting with some plaster. They measured the length of the creature's footprints and made two plaster casts, one of the best quality right foot and one of the best quality left foot. Now, didn't you say that you actually got to see these casts? No, I've just seen cast of other Bigfoot um, okay. feet at Sasquatch Rest. Which I still have yet to go to, and I am dying to go with you. Yeah, we're going to go this year. We are going. They met up with Al Hodgson at his store in Willow Creek at around 6.30 that night. Patterson said that he wanted to keep driving until they reached Eureka so he could mail the tape. Either from the store in Willow Creek or once they were actually in Eureka, he made the call to Al Diatli, who was his brother-in-law back in Yakima, to let him know that he was sending him the film. He asked Al Hodgson to call Donald Abbott, a scientist that had shown some interest in Bigfoot research, in hopes that he would bring in a tracking dog for them to be able to use to track the Bigfoot. Al made the call, but Abbott declined the request. They shipped the film off and then headed back to their camp, where they had left their horses behind. Along the way, they stopped at the Lower Trinity Ranger Station. They arrived at the ranger station around 9 p.m. and met up with Al Hodgson again and another friend of theirs, Syl McCoy. 
There, Patterson called the Daily Times Standard newspaper in Eureka and gave the story of his sighting to them. Patterson and Gimlin finally arrived back at their campsite around midnight. Heavy rain started the next morning around 5 or 5.30, so Gimlin headed back to the site where they had shot their film in hopes of preserving some of the footprints. Al had given them some cardboard for this purpose, but it had been left outside and got soggy and ruined from the rain, so he used some bark to cover the remaining tracks. He returned to the camp and had a discussion with Patterson about whether they should continue their search for more evidence or go home because of the poor weather conditions. They decided to play it safe and cancel their mission, as they feared that the heavy rain would wash out their exit. They attempted to exit using Bluff Creek Road, but found that it was blocked by a mudslide. They tried instead to leave using the steep Onion Mountain Road. Onion Mountain Road? Like in holes. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, are we about to see God's thumb? Honestly, when I was writing this, I was so... I was so excited to, like, get to this part. Because I just wanted to see your reaction to Onion Mountain Road. Just the Onion Mountain... Now I'm like, are we gonna get... uh, Is there gonna be sploosh involved? Are we gonna get into an overturned carriage and, like, break open... Potentially 70 to 80. No, this is called say 100 year old peaches and just drink them. Just uh. I don't want to dig anymore, Grandpa. That's too, That's too damn, damn bad. bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on Onion Mountain Road, their truck slid off the shoulder and they had to use a front end loader that was nearby without any permission to get it out. Sir, you got you got to ask first. A U.S. Forest Service timber management assistant named Lyle Laverty, Laverty, passed. That's a cool name. Uh, the name Lyle always makes me think of the Menendez brothers. So, I mean, I feel that, but I don't know. When paired up with that last, I I don't know the flow. Lyle Laverty. It's okay. You won't like him in a second. Passed by the filming site on either the nineteenth or twentieth with his team of three other workers and hadn't noticed any tracks in the area. He'd read Patterson's account of what had happened over his weekend break and decided to go out to the spot for himself to look. His team arrived at the site on Monday the 23rd and took six photos of the tracks. In an interesting twist, Laverty would would later become an assistant secretary of the interior under under the George W. Bush administration. Oh, you were right. (laughs) I told you. A taxidermist and outdoorsman named Robert Titmus... Nothing. Titmus. Nothing for Titmus. Isn't a titmouse a thing? It is a thing. That's all I'm thinking about. Robert Titmouse. Robert Titmouse. <laughs> uh, Robert Titmus also went out to the site to investigate the scene himself. He brought his sister and brother-in-law to the scene nine days after the film was shot. He made plaster casts of ten of the footprints and did his best to plot the movements of the men and the Sasquatch on a map. In a turn, it turned out that the camera that Patterson had used to film the creature had been rented on May 13th from photographer Harold Matson at Shepard's Camera Shop in Yakima, but Patterson had ended up keeping it for a longer time than their contract allowed him to, so an arrest warrant had been issued to him on October 17th, and he was arrested just weeks after his return from Bluff Creek. Uh, Could you imagine getting though. arrested for a camera? For a camera, man. That's... Dude. What are you in for? (laughs) Photography. After the film was developed, Patterson was eager to get the footage in front of scientists to see what they made of it. 
He was convinced that he had captured proof of Bigfoot's existence and had expected scientists to jump at the opportunity. To his dismay, few scientists were willing to look at his film. A few scientists did agree to it, and these showings were usually done at scientific organizations. Author Ivan Sanderson, who Patterson had originally become interested in the world of Bigfoot from, was an important fixture in setting these viewings up. Seven showings of the film aired at the end of 1968 in Vancouver, Manhattan, the Bronx, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, another Washington, D.C. showing, and another Washington, D.C. showing. Another later showing happened in Beaverton, Oregon. Most scientists who discussed their thoughts after seeing the film were skeptical, and some, but some did admit that they were intrigued by the possibility of the film. Though the film didn't have the reach in the scientific community that Patterson had been hoping for, he was still able to capitalize on it. He signed a deal with BBC that allowed them to use his footage in a docudrama that they were producing, in exchange for him being able to tour with their docudrama. Parts of his own documentary and other material filmed by himself and Al Diatli were used in the BBC project. That's how you do it, though. You want to be taken at least like a little bit seriously? You sign that deal with the BBC. That is true. Give They'll do you right. Credibility. Do you right. The film from this project was shown in theaters in the Midwest and around the Pacific Northwest. They heavily advertised the film screening on TV, and it became a moderate success. Aldi Atlee estimated that his 50% of the film's profits amounted, amounted to $75,000. The film generated quite a bit of national publicity, and Patterson made some appearances on TV to promote it, and his belief in Bigfoot. He appeared on The Joe Pine Show in Los Angeles in 1967, on Merv Griffin's show, and on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. Articles on the film were published in Argosy, National Wildlife Magazine, and Reader's Digest. Patterson would also do radio appearances to promote this film. While Patterson wanted the film in front of as many people as possible, and was busy doing promotion for it left and right, Gimlin took the opposite approach. He briefly helped promote the film, but that didn't last long, and he avoided discussion. He avoided discussing his encounter with Bigfoot for years, turning down many interviews. He later said that he avoided the public eye after Patterson and promoter Al Diatli had broken their agreement to pay him a one-third share of any profits generated by the film, which is pretty messed up. That is that is pretty screwed up, man. Why would you do that? His wife may have also objected to the media suddenly being involved in their lives, too. Patterson remained an avid Bigfoot hunter until his death from Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1972. In 1969, he hired two brothers to travel around the country in a truck, chasing down leads of encounters and evidence of Bigfoot. Why does this just sound like Bigfoot version of Supernatural? You know? Two brothers in a truck looking for Sasquatch sightings. As versus two brothers going across the country fighting ghosts. I watched the first seven minutes of Supernatural once. Yeah, so so did I. And I said, this is for someone, but it sure ain't me. I said something very similar to that. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, in December of that same year, he was present in Bossburg, Washington, after the Cripplefoot tracks were found. We'll definitely be covering the discovery of this track in a future episode, along with some other really weird, fun Bigfoot claims to come out of Bossburg. I'm really, really excited to tell you about some of these, because there's some really, really fun stories. Shout out Cripplefoot! <laughs> yeah, I don't- can we get Cripplefoot, uh, an updated, modern, modernized PC name? I feel bad every time I say it. 
he was an injured Bigfoot that left the track, and so he's kind of like a weird, abnormal Bigfoot foot. We'll call him injured track. foot. Injured or abnormal foot. foot. Abnormal foot. Disabled foot? Abby foot. I don't know if any of these are better. What about what about Abby for short? For for abnormal, we'll call it Abby foot. You just did what every Bigfoot scientist failed to do. <laughs> Give it like a tasteful name. <laughs> <laughs> A few years after the Patterson-Gimlin film was shot, Patterson received a letter from a man who claimed that he was a U.S. airman stationed in Thailand. This man claimed that a Sasquatch was being held in a Buddhist monastery. Patterson spent the majority of his remaining money on an expedition to go to the monastery before realizing that it was a hoax. Nah, man. Bigfoot found himself and then flew the coop. Just Bigfoot on, like, a meditation journey to find himself? An eat, pray, love style journey. Absolutely. Eat, pray, squatch. He only discovered that it was a hoax after sending a friend, Dennis Jensen, to Thailand to meet with the man. Jensen reported back that the man was mentally unbalanced. Patterson received a second letter from the man and flew to Thailand with Jensen to investigate the matter himself. A few days before Roger Patterson died, he told Bigfoot author Peter Byrne that in retrospect, he wished that he would have shot the thing and brought out a body instead of a reel of film. According to the authors Grover Krantz and Robert Pyle, both Patterson and Gimlin agreed as the years went on that they should have tried to shoot that they should have tried to shoot the creature, both for financial gain and to silence naysayers. Adding to the mystery, the whereabouts of the original film are unknown, and there's tons of speculation as to what might have happened to it. Patterson gave up ownership of the original to American National Enterprises, but they went bankrupt just a few years after his death. According to author Greg Long, Peregrine Entertainment bought the company. Then Peregrine was bought by Century Group of Los Angeles. When Century Group went bankrupt in 1996, Byrne rushed to Deerfield Beach, Florida, where an accountant was auctioning off the company's assets to pay creditors. The company's films were in storage in Los Angeles, but a search failed to turn up the Patterson footage. Oh man, I was born in 96. I hope my birth wasn't the reason they went out of, out of business. It might have been. That's a lot of weight for an infant to carry. Don't do that to me. In 2008, Chris Murphy thought that a lawyer may now have possession of the film, but eventually realized that the lawyer had contacted the Los Angeles storage company that held it, and they responded that the film was not in the place that the lawyer's records had indicated. Bill Munn wrote that. It was last seen by researchers Rene DeHinden and Bruce Bonney in 1980, when Rene convinced the film vault in Southern California holding it to release it to him. DeHinden made... Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Cibachrome? Kibachrome? I'm going with Cibachrome. I'm going with Cibachrome because that sounds cooler. Sounds cooler... Looks like it would work a little bit better. Cibachrome. Sometime between that and 1996, the film went missing from its numbered location inside the vault. Am I causing not only the closing of this, but am I am I causing the, the loss of this film? Your birth was really... My birth just caused the Oakville, Oakville blobs and the whole situation with Kurt Cobain. Um... But yeah, you really. I caused the closing of these, these this 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 production house. It was a production house, right? Yeah, production company. Yeah, production company. I closed them, 
I lose a, I lose a Bigfoot film. You lost the single most iconic Bigfoot I lost, of all time. I lost to the Bigfoot film. And Angel Melendez washed up on shore in New York City. Lost Club here. kids. Luckily, at least seven copies of the original film were made. Oh, that's a relief. But the missing film and other missing bits of evidence would be incredibly helpful to those analyzing it. Sorry. For instance, the second reel of film that shows Patterson and Gimlin making and displaying the plaster cast of the footprints. According to those present at the screening, this wasn't shown with the first reel at the first showing at Diatley's house. Author Chris Murphy believes that the first and last screening of the second roll of film was held at the University of British Columbia on October 26, 1967. He suspects that it had since been lost. Now, do you think that the reason they didn't show that film of them casting the foot was simply because they were just like, oh, they don't want to see this, this is boring? Or do you think it do you think they just didn't even think about it? I think that and I think because like in all of the footage that they captured, like the thing that the scientists I think could like be most easily able to analyze would be the large, gigantic Fuzzy hairy creature, creature yeah. instead of like a very like blurry footprint, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's that's a good point. But I also I don't know. I also feel like that is a little weird. Like why wouldn't you I don't I feel I feel like I feel like I would be wanting to show everything that I had had. But you know, I don't know. Maybe they lost know. it like immediately or maybe it got damaged or something and that's, that's why it point. doesn't exist anymore. That's a good point. Something else that makes the footage difficult to analyze for those interested is that the film was accidentally shot at 18 frames per second. Patterson usually filmed at 24 frames per second, but in his excitement and shock at the creature's appearance, he didn't note his camera settings correctly. Dr. D.W. Grieve, back at it again with another, like, add that to your Undertaker crew. We had Pat Graves earlier, now we got D. D Dr. D.W. Greaves. I'm Dr. D.W. Greaves. So D.W. Greaves is an anatomist with expertise in human biomechanics, and he was one of those who examined the frame speed and subject captured by the video. He confessed to being perplexed and unsettled by the fact that the creature in the video could be real. John Napier, a primatologist, said, if the movie was filmed at 24 frames per second, then the creature's walk cannot be distinguished from a normal human walk. If it was filmed at 16 or 18 frames per second, there are a number of important re respects in which it is quite unlike a man's gait. Rene de Hinden analyzed the footage and stated that the footage of the horses prior to the Bigfoot film looks jerky and unnatural when projected at 24 frames, frames per second causing him to agree that the footage was most likely shot at 18 frames per second. They did experiments on location at Bluff Creek by having people walk the same path that the Sasquatch had and reported that none of us could walk the distance in 40, so I eliminated 24 frames per second. I think now is a good time to get into what believers and skeptics have to say about the film and discuss what we think about the facts presented. Are you ready? Oh, I'm buckled up. I'm ready to go. Can I get a whoop? Whoop! Patterson and Gimlin's account of the creature line up in many ways, but there are several inconsistencies in their accounts of what happened. There's differences in the way they say they and their horses first reacted to seeing the creature. Patterson especially increased the size of the creature in later narrations of the event. And we pretty much talked about that earlier. 
how it's like a, a fishing tale. Pretty much, it just gets, it, it gets bigger every gets time. Bigger yeah. Every time he tells the story. Every time. Couldn't have been any any less than like six, seven, six, nine, seven feet long, you know. In 1995, Greg Long, a technical writer for a technology film firm who had a hobby of investigating and writing about Northwest mysteries, started doing a series of interviews with those who knew Patterson. Some of those people described him as a liar and a con man. Among the people who had less than favorable favorable things to say about Patterson were Jerry Lee Merritt, the rockabilly musician, Aww. Pat Mason, Glenn Colling, Bob Swanson, and a man just identified as Marvin. They all suffered financially by dealing with Patterson. 21 small local creditors also sued Patterson via a collection agency. But that's kind of owing a lot of people money. That's that's a lot of people you owe money to, sir. You need to you need to get together. Vilma Radford claimed that she had loaned him money for his Bigfoot movie that he never repaid. Radford had evidence, too. Let's get into some of the things skeptics have to say about the film. Some statements from scientists who attended one of the screenings of the film were compiled in Chris Murphy's Bigfoot film journal. Some of the objections the scientists had were... Ne- that neither humans nor chimpanzees have hairy breasts like the one seen on the creature in the film. Wow, I'm taking a lot away from that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> like what? Well, first off, I have hairy breasts. Thank you very much. Well, I am a I am a hairy individual. But head to toe, most female. Okay, female. I almost okay. said most female women. Most, you know, human women. You have, like, a light, you know, everyone has, like, super light, fine hair that's on their body, but it's not, like, Call that peach fuzz. Yeah, peach fuzz. It's. I was going to say that, but then it made me think about the movie Creep, and I didn't (laughs) want to think about that right now while I was trying to record a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Bernard Huvelmans is a zoologist who is sometimes called the father of cryptozoology and is among those who do not believe that the film is authentic. He believes that the creature in the Patterson film was just a human wearing a suit. With the title, like, Father of Cryptozoology, I don't even know what this man looks like, but I am imagining, like, what a zoologist would look like. Mm -hmm. You know, a very very sciencey zoologist with a white lab coat and everything. But with the title of Father of Cryptozoology, I imagine he he just everywhere he goes, he walks into a room. He walks into Squatch Fest of all places with an aura around him, like a an or like an orange aura. And he's just like, this is not real. Like he's Father Time. Like he's Father Christmas. <laughs> he said that the hair pattern was too uniform, and that the hair seen on the pre- the breast wasn't primate like. The buttocks were insufficiently separated. And it was way too calm while it was making its way away from the men. All right, so let's start unpacking this. <laughs> the hair pattern was too uniform. To me, it looks like a normal animal's hair pattern. It doesn't look like super fake like a suit would, in my opinion. You know, like the hair's not sticking like straight out. It's like laying flat with yeah, the body. I was about to say, yeah, it just kind of looks like... Well, I don't want to say necessarily like... The, that of a dog's fur but yeah in that same way where it just kind of like it just that's the way it would grow in yeah. this direction uh the hair on the breast not being primate like that's the second person to kind of point that out 
Why are y'all obsessed with Bigfoot's breasts? Yeah, I really, um, when I got to this part of the episode when I was writing it, I was like, you know, I don't really feel comfortable commenting on Bigfoot's body in this way. She's just out there doing her thing. I'm sure her body works just fine. She looked like she was getting along just good in the woods. But then again, what is more uncomfortable, Bigfoot's breasts or the buttocks that were insufficiently separated? Can't a girl get a little privacy? Come on, even Bigfoot's body has to be scrutinized. <laughs> You know what I mean? Can't can a girl catch a break? But yeah, um, I don't know what they mean about that because when I look at that footage, I see. Yeah, we watched it. We two were just cheeks. like, yeah, we were just like, Bigfoot thick. Double cheeked up on a Thursday afternoon. Double cheeked up on a Gimlin afternoon. And as for the claim that it was way too calm for making, while it was making its way away from the men, I mean, I don't know about that. It did look back over its shoulder at the Illinois a couple a of few, times. Yeah, I was about to say a few times. And it was definitely like briskly walking or she sorry was briskly walking her way out of the area and not like she wasn't like casually like doo, 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 look yeah, no, at she... that butterfly it's such a nice sunny <laughs> day you know she was like oh shit fucking getting, getting intruded on are... i'm gonna get the fuck away mm, from these dudes get me out of here primate expert john napier released a book in 1973 about the film and other bigfoot evidence that had been gathered titled bigfoot the sasquatch and yeti in myth and reality Napier is a believer in Bigfoot, saying that, I am convinced that Sasquatch exists. But he didn't think that the creature seen in the film was real. Of the film, he said, There is little doubt that the scientific evidence taken collectively points to a hoax of some kind. The creature shown in the film does not stand up well to functional analysis. Some of his concerns with the film's authenticity came from the footprints, which he said were totally at variance with its cal calculated height. He was also suspicious of the hourglass shape of the footprints. Another specialist who viewed the tape was Esteban Sarmiento, who is a specialist in physical anthropology at the American Museum of Natu Natural History. His career highlights include 25 years of experience with great apes out in the wild. He said that he observed some, observed some inconsistencies in appearance and behavior that might point to it being fake, but nothing conclusive. His main criticism was, The plantar surface of the feet is decidedly pale, but the palm of the hand seems to be dark. There is no mammal I know in, know of in which the plantar sole differs so drastically in color from the palm. That, to me, is the most like interesting critique so far. That actually, that's a very valid, very, mm -hmm. very, very valid critique, yeah. Because I'm trying to like run down and, yeah, no. Right, because, like, especially, like, uniform. going back to Bigfoot's breast again, I'm sorry. Th they're like, well, that's not seen in chimpanzees or humans. And it's like, okay, well, Bigfoot's not a chimpanzee and she's not a human. She's a Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're doing, we're dealing with a new breed, people. Exactly. He also said that the gluteals, although large, failed to show a human-like cleft or crack. He also noted that the body proportions were within the human range and were very different from any living ape or fossils found of Authoropithecine. He estimated the creature's weight to be between, to be between 190 and 240 pounds. Only one, not only. Doesn't what, that seem what? Only a buck ninety to 240. That seems light. Why don't we just call it at 115? <laughs> I would have guessed. Skinny legend Bigfoot. I, I would have guessed, honestly, starting at 240 up to probably call it 375. 
Really, I would assume that a Bigfoot would probably weigh like 800 pounds to like 1,200. Like a horse. Just a big-ass mammal that big? How much does a gorilla weigh? Sounds like a setup to a joke. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) That is a good question. I'm going to look that up real quick. How much much does a gorilla weigh? Because if this is 190 to 240... That's that's just too that that's just too light to me. Especially it's like seven feet tall. But then again, I guess that also kind of checks out. Also, but, another scientist coming in hot with the criticism on Bigfoot's butt cheeks. He does bring a valid point about about the crack. <laughs> but she's not a human. Lots of animals don't have a butt crack. That yeah yeah that's true. That is also true. Okay, so Western gorillas. Let's just go with the Eastern Gorilla, because the Western Gorilla weight falls under that same class. Anywhere from 310 to 450 pounds. Wow, gorillas are a lot lighter than I thought they were. I don't know why I thought that they were like 800-pound animals. I mean, I kind of thought so too, honestly. I didn't even realize that they were like that. Yeah, But even then, still. Yeah, like a gorilla was going to weigh more than a Bigfoot. That doesn't make any sense to me. Bigfoot's so much bigger than a gorilla. We're poking holes in the soft wet underbelly. We really are. <laughs> I mean, he has 25 years of experience with great apes, and we have one brief Google search. <laughs> <laughs> Anthropologist David J. Dang- Dagling of the University of Florida and Daniel O. Schmidt examined the film and from their findings concluded that it was impossible to determine whether the figure was human or not. They cited the camera movement, poor image quality, and the unusual subject matter as reasons why. Daigling does think that the creature's walk can be recreated by humans. He said, Supposed peculiarities of subject speed, stride length, and posture are all reproducible by a human being employing this type of locomotion. He did note that in 1967, special effects in TVs and movies were still in their rough beginning stage, He said that if the Patterson film Bigfoot is really just some guy in a suit, that it's not unreasonable to suggest that it is better than some of the tackier monster outfits that got thrown together for television at that time. That's kind of the thing. If it's a suit, it's a great suit. That is a good point. I'm curious. And going back to Bob Gimlin in a wig, that doesn't make me think that they had, like, an incredibly high budget for this movie. And it seems like they really struggled with some of their fundraising, so where are they getting, like, thousands of dollars to spend on a Bigfoot suit, if that is what they did? The film was also shown to people other than scientists, including researchers for Nike shoes. What? Yeah. What? Gordon Valiant watched the video and pointed out several movements that seemed unhuman to him. Patterson had shown the film to Dale Sheets, head of the documentary film department at Universal Studios, and a room of technicians who worked in the special effects department. Their conclusion was that, we could try faking it, but we would have to create a completely new system of artificial muscles and find an actor who could be trained to walk like that. It might be done, but we would have to say that it would be almost impossible. Almost all agreed that if it was a man in an ape suit, it was a It was one of amazing quality, and it must have taken a lot of time and money to produce. Disney executive Ken Peterson said that their technicians would not be able to duplicate the film. Greg Long wrote that the trip, that a trip was taken to Disney Studios in 1972 
and the chief of animation watched the Patterson film with three of his assistants. They praised it as beautiful work, but said that it must have been shot in a studio. When they were told that it had been shot in the woods of Northern California, they shook their heads and walked away. Bill Munns, a retired special effects makeup artist, cameraman, and film editor, didn't think that Universal and Disney were the best places they could have taken the film, though. He said that instead, they should have taken it to Fox, MGM, and special effects artist Stuart Freeborn in England, who had just completed his groundbreaking ape suits for 2001, A Space Odyssey. In 2009, Munn started posting his analysis of the film online and has published several papers on the subject. He believes that the creature in the footage is real and not just a man in a monkey suit. He suggested using the creature's armpit as a test of its authenticity, and that a living animal would have a natural concave skin fold, where a suit would just have a vertical, artificial crease. Munn's analysis was featured in the History Channel series Monster Quest. He also filmed several attempts of him trying to build a suit like the one seen in the footage, but none of his attempts have been successful. He's of the opinion that the suit could not have been created with the limitations of special effects makeup at the time. Or special effects at the time. See, I, hmm, I don't know, man. I, and I was kind of sitting with that 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 theory that it was all shot on like a soundstage or in a studio or something, because that's just that that I don't know why, but that never really like hit me. Because I mean, and I don't know why it didn't hit me. Because you know, you got the Kubrick landing, moon landing theory. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that this was shot out in the woods of California. But I definitely, yeah, from the original footage, I, I, I'm, I'm more inclined to believe that it was out in, in, in nature. But I can also kind of sort of see the angle. I don't know. Now I'm starting to get like down in the rabbit hole of Bigfoot. I want to go watch the Patterson Gimlin film like a hundred million more times and just really break it down. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> And I'll post, I found a really, really good um, comparison photo of the suits from Planet of the Apes, which was like the height of special effects costuming at its time, and came out 10 years after the Patterson-Gimlin film, I believe it was 10 years, and a picture of the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot Patty next to it as a comparison, and there's just no comparing it. The Bigfoot looks real. And the monkey men look like fake monkey men costumes. It's insane to me. It, to me, it, it... The only thing that I can think of now is, yeah, they would have had to have, like, huh. Well, we'll get into this later, but I guess I could see it being a suit, but I don't think that it was made with traditional co- Hollywood costume making methods. No, for sure. And that's kind of some foreshadowing for some stuff that we'll get into later. Oh, I'm jumping the gun. I'm sorry, folks. Let me let me get back in the back seat. I'm going to chill here for a second. I'll be right back up with y'all in a bit. In the years after their Bigfoot sighting and the film's release, Patterson and Gimlin always denied that they had hoaxed anyone. However, in 1999, Gimlin did a phone interview for BBC's program, The X Creatures. Gimlin said for a long time he was totally convinced that no one could fool me. And of course, I'm an older man now, and I think there could have been a possibility of a hoax, but it would have had to have been really well planned by Roger. Greg Long wrote about circumstantial evidence of Patterson faking footprints, and possibly even sightings and photos around the Yakima Valley area. Some think that if he could have faked the other evidence, he could have faken the Bluff Bluff Creek footage too. 
One possible motive for the hoaxes around Yakima was to make the idea of Bigfoot more real to Floyd Paxton, a local millionaire who Patterson was hoping to obtain funding for, from for his Sasquatch excursion. Skeptics also point out that it's more than a little convenient that Patterson set out in hopes of making a Bigfoot documentary and then literally stumbled upon one while doing it. He did, however, go to an area where Sasquatch had been sighted for years, and to me it makes sense that you would go where the rare creature has been spotted to try to find the rare creature. That is a good point. You know, like, if you've been told that, like, oh, this one rare bird has been seen in this one area, it's like, okay, if I want to go see this bird, but, go in there. But also, would that not make it that much easier to fake it? Like, you're in the area where they are, like, seen or have been have been seen. So then all you got to do is just sneak your stuff in there, shoot a little film, and then run out. Yeah, exactly. Like, using the um location's previous sightings to, like, give your exactly. hoax film more credit. Bluff Creek had also been the site of a hoax in the past. Ray Wallace had faked prints in the area beginning in 1958. He used a wooden cutout of a foot to make the prints, and his family only went public with the information with this information after his death in 2002. Patterson wrote about meeting Wallace in his book, so the men did at least meet. Mark Chorvinsky, editor of Strange Magazine, helped promote a claim made by Wallace that he had told Patterson exactly where to go looking for a Sasquatch. Chorvinsky wrote, Roger Patterson came over dozens of times pumping me on this Bigfoot. Ray Wallace explained to a re- to researcher Dennis Pilchus in 1982, I felt sorry for Roger Patterson. He told me he had cancer of the lymph glands, and he was desperately broke, and he wanted to try to get something where he could have a little income. Well, he went down there exactly where I told him. I told him, you go down there and hang hang around on that bank. Stay up there and watch that spot. Some skeptics believe that Wallace had some degree of involvement in the filming of the Patterson-Gimlin film. Others aren't so sure that Patterson's friendliness with Wallace indicated him being involved in any way. Lauren Coleman has written that since Patterson was an early Bigfoot investigator, it made sense that he would seek out and interview those who had sighted Bigfoot before him, and he had believed that the 1958 Bluff Creek tracks were real. Patterson was an accomplished artist who drew and painted a lot of horses and wildlife. Skeptics who believe that he could have pulled off a hoax cite the obvious understanding of musculature and anatomy shown in his paintings as something that might point towards him being able to create such a realistic suit of the animal and the move as it walks and then man this is weird (laughs) yeah that that's what i was gonna bring up because it's so i feel like it's totally possible for this dude to have envisioned this have a way to build it and then it what 80 to 280 depending on the point in the film feet away and arguably better than like planet of the apes stuff 10 years later i mean what costume even now can you see the muscles moving not a one we just use cgi for that anymore and then even then now i'm trying to think of like other stuff and it's more like puppets and and like hydraulics and stuff unless somebody out there has some evidence of that hit us up i want to know peter byrne interviewed both patterson and gimlin multiple times and ended up writing that Both men lacked, primarily, the intellectual capacity essential to the production of a hoax, termed a masterpiece. Daigling also concluded that most acquaintances of Patterson volunteered that neither he nor Gimlin were clever enough to put something that detailed together. Even though Gimlin and Patterson never confessed to it being a hoax if it 
was plenty of other people have come forward claiming to be involved in the making of the film and most often that they're the guy who is actually inside the suit. In 2002, Philip Morris, owner of Morris Costumes in Northern Car- in North in Northern Carolina, in North Carolina, <laughs> came forward and claimed that he had made a gorilla costume that had been used in the Patterson Gimlin film. Morris claimed that he had originally done the rounds back in the 80s at costume conventions, lectures, and magic conventions, but decided to announce it to the world on August 16, 2002, on a Charlotte, North Carolina radio station, WBT. He said that he had been reluctant to share that he had taken part in the hoax until then because he f- it would be a giving away the performer's secret situation and was worried that it would harm his business. I kind of want to see if this audio is available anywhere. Yeah, we'll definitely look that up too. Because I'm a, I'm a sucker for just just because for I mean it's not necessarily that eerie, but for whatever reason I feel like just listening to that on the radio would be eerie. Just like all of a sudden, all of this heavy information about Bigfoot that really isn't that heavy <laughs> being dropped, and like all of a sudden you're like, oh, this dude made that like kind of like that fake. Oh, what was that? Coast to coast or whatever AM radio station that was of that dude that called in about freaking out about the aliens. And, oh, yeah. Which was the really classic. Love yeah. it. Love that. He said that he had sold the gorilla suit to Patterson by mail order in 1967. He was under the understanding that Patterson was going to use it in a prank. He said that the suits he sold were commonly used in sideshow act where an attractive woman would be turned into an ape-like monster by a wizard or scientist. After the sale was complete, Morris said that Patterson had called him and asked how to make the shoulders more massive and the arms longer. Morris suggested that whoever was wearing the suit could wear football shoulder pads and hold sticks in his hands while inside the suit. I instantly, I adore this story now. I, 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 I love, I just, first off, when, when, I heard, when I read Patterson was going to use it, in a prank i'm just imagining him just being like i'm gonna get a jump start on this youtube stuff i'm gonna prank everybody <laughs> and then <laughs> was selling them mainly for like sideshow acts i love sideshows <laughs> and i i love that kind of cheesy stuff and i could definitely even again still see this dude making it especially if it's for a sideshow because i mean we saw jake the alligator man granted that's a completely different end of sideshowery side side showery um but still i can see that still being in the same the same exact vein yeah um so i get yeah i could totally see again this guy making a costume that is convincing enough on film and arguably better than the planet of the apes from 10 years after okay i could see that about the creature's distinctive walk he said The Bigfoot researchers say that no human can walk that way in film. Oh, yes, they can. When you're wearing long clown's feet, you can't place the ball of your foot down first. You have to put your foot down flat. Otherwise, you'll stumble. Another thing, when you put on the gorilla head, you can only turn your head maybe a quarter of the way. And to look behind you, you've got to turn your head and your shoulders and your hips. Plus, the shoulder pads in the suit are in the way of your jaw. In the way of the jaw. That's why the Bigfoot turns and looks the way he does in the film. He has to twist his entire upper body. Alright, I have an issue with this. When he talks about it, he calls the Bigfoot a he. That Bigfoot, as we've talked about many times in this episode already, is a female. Had them take old bitties. <laughs> and he keeps calling it he. You think that he would remember making a titted Bigfoot? 
He sounds like a sexist Bigfootologist. Wait, if he said that he just sold him the 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 gorilla costume that he uses for every sideshow act, does that mean that they all just have tits? Or do I mean, you I think guess... he got a? Or do you think he had a variant? I don't know, but he said that he sold him the one in, that was in every other sideshow thing, and he said that in that he it also was an attractive woman. He said it was an attractive woman that gets turned into a monkey man. So I guess in the attractive woman bit, they'd be like, well, we got to retain some aspect of the hot chick underneath and we'll just leave the tits on. He also asked them about like how to modify parts of it, like how to like elongate the arms, right? And the legs. So like breast territory. And yeah, I guess that Patterson could have done that addition or Patterson and Gimlin could have added the boobs onto the Bigfoot costume themselves. And uncomfortably shaped asses for that one guy true <laughs> morris's wife is also his business partner and she backed up his claims and even says that she helped frame the suit no evidence of morris's involvement has ever been found though other than them claiming to be involved a recreation video of the patterson gimlin film was taken on october 6 2004 at cow camp near rimrock lake about 40 miles away from yakima Greg Long had contacted Morris 11 months prior to the shoot of the recreation video and had Morris design a suit for it. The producer from National Geographic, Noel Doxter, noted that the suit used in this recreation wasn't similar to the one in the Patterson-Gimlin footage at all. Morris then refused to consent to the release of the video by National Geographic, who had sponsored the whole thing. He claimed that he hadn't had adequate time to make a suit and that the month was right in the middle of his busy season. Since then, he has not attempted to make another suit. I don't think that Morris made that suit. Or I think that Morris made other suits, but I don't think that Morris made the suit that was used in the Patterson-Gimlin footage. That's if feasible. If it was a suit. I think, yeah. I, I, think that's, I think that's plausible. A man named Bob Hieronymus claimed that he was the figure wearing the suit in the Patterson-Gimlin film. Before announcing his supposed involvement, he claims that he kept quiet about it in hopes that he would be paid eventually, because he was afraid of being con and because he was afraid of being convicted for fraud. After he spoke to a lawyer and they told him that if he hadn't been paid, he couldn't be held accountable, he decided to speak up. He'd watched the December 28, 1998 Fox television special, World's Greatest Hoaxes, Secrets Finally Revealed. I want to see that. <laughs> I, I, I do too, actually. <laughs> he decided to go public with his news a month later. He announced it via a press, press release written by his lawyer, Barry Woodard, that was published in a Yakima magazine. In it, Bob claimed that, I'm telling the truth. I'm tired after 37 years. Five days later, another newspaper published a story that reported that his lawyer's office had been flooded by calls from the media, and they were waiting for the dust to settle a bit, but expected to tell the full story to the press soon. Author Greg Long thinks that the suit Morris claims to have sold Patterson might have been the one worn by Hieronymus in the footage. However, when Long quotes both Morris and Hieronymus describing the suit, there's a number of differences in the way that they describe the suits. Hieronymus said that his older brother Howard had been told by Patterson that he created the suit out of horsehide. He told Long that the suit weighed 20 to 25 pounds and that the suit stunk. He claimed that Roger had skinned a dead horse with a red coat. That doesn't look like a horse coat to me. It doesn't to me either. It looks like the hair's too long. Hieronymus's mother, Opal, and nephew, John Miller, claimed that they both saw an ape suit in Bob's car. Opal said that she saw the suit just two days after the Patterson-Gimlin film was made. 
One of Hieronymus's friends, Russ Bohannon, said Bob had privately revealed his part in the hoax to him in either 1968 or 1969. Another longtime friend of his, Bernard Hammermeister, we're getting hit left and right with the bizarre last names in this paragraph. <laughs> I just. <laughs> uh, Bernard Hammermeister also says that he was so- shown an ape suit inside of Bob's car. Morris, however, claimed that the suit had been made out of dynol, which is a lighter weight material that has little to no smell. He also said that it was the standard suit that they sold to all customers, and it had cost $435. Hieronymus said that the suit had no metal pieces, and that he put the top section on like a t-shirt. He also said that the bottom part was belted with a drawstring. Morris's suits, however, were one piece and had a metal zipper on the back, so the wearer would step into the pants and then wiggle their way into the rest, which is nothing like putting a t-shirt on. Hieronymus described the suit as having hands and feet that were attached to the costume's arms and legs, while Morris made suits that featured hands and feet as separate pieces. Long wondered if Patterson could have glued or attached the hands and feet to the suit somehow, but no evidence of this was ever given. I was about to say, because I'm like, and maybe it's just my mind doing what it wants and seeing what it wants. because, And I also don't have, you know, the tape playing in front of me right now. But I feel like from my memory, because I've seen it enough, I've seen a horse with some long hair. Arrow's very shaggy. My I was horse, about to say. My, I have a horse named Arrow who's a little Mustang. And during the winter, he gets incredibly shaggy. Yeah, I was about to say, I was going to I was gonna bring up Arrow, but I wasn't sure where you were sitting on that. But Arrow is a shaggy boy. Mm-hmm. And that's still, even compared to this, does not, that's not a horse hide, man. Why you always lying? I don't know, man. That looks like one piece. Yeah, to me, it looks like it's all one piece, too. There's no obvious, there's nothing that stands out as like an obvious seam or crease or separate part to me it looks like a living animal to me like in in my opinion it also doesn't seem like the same thing with the creases but it doesn't seem like it was glued anywhere you know yeah everything seems seemed like it moved fluidly like nothing was like as one unit stiff. as yeah. it should yeah yeah some that have seen the film think that hieronymus's arms are too short for him to be the one in the suit and that he is too short to be the figure seen Hieronymus fires back at this by explaining that he wore football shoulder pads, but denied that he was holding sticks inside of the costume. He claimed that he just wore gloves that were a bit longer than his actual hands. Others think that he's not bulky enough to have been the creature on the film, but believers think that the suit could have been padded out to make him larger. Hieronymus has never mentioned there being padding inside of the costume, though. Polygraphs about their claims were passed by both Patterson and Hieronymus, adding to the mystery of who is telling the truth even more. In 2005, Bob Gimlin started giving interviews on the Patty sightings, as well as going to Bigfoot conferences. The Patterson-Gimlin film remains one of the most single-analyzed and debated pieces of cryptid evidence in existence, and the existence of Bigfoot has neither been proven nor disproven. I mean, here we are right now, debating it, mm-hmm. trying to prove and or disprove it. Do you have, like, a final thought? I can go into mine first if you want. <sighs> I think that Patty is real. I really, really want to believe that Patty is real. I think that there's a lot of evidence out there that Patterson may have maybe not been a great guy. He definitely owed a lot of people money. He was a badass for sure. But that suit, 
It's not a suit. It just it does not look like a suit to me. It looks like a living animal. I don't know. I always kind of thought it looked suitish, but it it's it just looked too natural for me to like fully get onto the suit wagon. But with some of this information, you know, some of the weird back and forth about I made these suits, but they are exclusively for sideshows and stuff like that. I'm I don't know, man. I'm kind I'm I'm kind of leaning into that a little more now. You're leaning into Morris creating the suit that they use. Yeah. It, it that, that that might also just be me liking weird sideshow circus stuff and <laughs> sideshow just, just wanting that to be true. Like I hope I hope if that is true that suit is like pr- in pristine condition like behind glass or something and then eventually guys if you're listening to this Whoever has that suit, I will pay you to see it. <laughs> I'm sure plenty of people would pay you to see that s- suit. Oh, definitely. I will give you my paycheck just to see that suit. <laughs> my next paycheck, <laughs> you have my word. Thank you for listening to another episode of Olympia Oddities. If you want to support the podcast, give our Facebook or Instagram a follow at Olympia Oddities Podcast on both. Tell a friend or leave us a positive review. If you want to send in an idea for a topic for us to cover or your own personal spooky or weird story, you can DM us anytime on Facebook or Instagram or email us at olympiaoddities at gmail.com. I'm Trista, and you can find my personal Instagram at saloonghost. I'm Steven. You can find me on Instagram at the Steven Ramirez. Also, my other podcast, which is called Double Jointed. And until next time, friends. <laughs>